A big thank you to our sponsor this week, Mountain West Animal Hospital. Mountain West Animal Hospital was founded in 1977 by our good friend and fan of the podcast, Dr. Harold Davis. And I'm just realizing now that the acronym for Mountain West Animal Hospital is actually MWAH. So if that doesn't show you how compassionate they are going to be with your animals, I don't know what else will. Their website is docbot.com. Welcome to ICU, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. I see you. Welcome to I See You. This is episode 58, Compassion in the Courtroom with Judge Mortensen. In honor of having Mountain West Animal Hospital as our sponsor for this week, I'm going to tell you how my rabbit died. I promised to do this a few episodes ago, and here it's coming into fruition. So I needed something fuzzy and warm to take care of many a year ago when I was trying to have a baby and we couldn't. And it was just years of infertility and I was sad and I just needed something to nurture and take care of. So it started with a dog. We rescued a dog for a day and a half. (laughs) And I loved that dog so much already. It did not take me long. But with both Rob and I having full-time jobs, we realized really quickly that the dog needed more attention and love than we were able to give him. So we returned the dog and it was awful. That morning I was trying to get ready for work and the dog just followed me around everywhere and I was crying as I was trying to put on my mascara, petting the dog. It was seriously so sad. And Rob was so sweet. He had me go to work first and then he took the dog back while I was at work so that I didn't have to do it. And I just remember coming home and seeing the empty kennel and I fell on the floor and then on the couch crying. And I was so sick and nauseated that day. For some reason, I'd gotten a stomach bug, probably because I was teaching grimy little children. (laughs) But I was so sick and I just remember being so pathetic and laying on the couch and it was Christmas time. The Christmas tree was up and I laid there and cried and I read a Christmas carol on the couch. It was so sad. Anyways, the point of that story is to tell you that then I decided to go a little smaller and we got a bunny. And my bunny, I named him Thumper. He was this white little fluff ball with black spots. I need a way to honor Thumper so you can see how cute he is. Maybe I'll link a picture in the show notes of Thumper. Eventually, I gave Thumper away to a teenage girl in our neighborhood that I really loved and cared about. And I didn't realize at the time that her family had a pit bull. So apparently, Thumper was in his cage and the pit bull entered the room and Thumper had a heart attack and died because he was so scared of the pit bull. No joke. He just keeled over and died. So that's the story of how my bunny died. The review for this week is entitled Refreshing, five stars, and it is from Lena the Lovely 337. It says, this podcast is a joy to listen to and uplifting. Julie talks about hard things in a way that is loving and enlightening. I always feel better after listening. And that is such a joy for me to read something like that. (laughs) That sounded very studious. It is such a joy to read. very proper. It makes me so happy to read this, to hear someone that it's a joy to listen to and that it's uplifting and it's enlightening and that they feel better after listening. Because I think sometimes when people hear what my podcast is about, they think that it's it's not something they want to listen to because it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful and it could bring up feelings. I'm grateful to receive these reviews that often do highlight how good they feel listening to them and how it actually has made them feel more connected to people and not less. That's always my goal. 
the interview this week is cool because it's such a unique perspective. It's the perspective of a judge. And I don't always think of judges as being the most compassionate people. Maybe I have Judge Judy on the mind. But Judge Mortensen definitely doesn't fit that preconceived idea I I used to have of a judge. So I'm just saying, if I ever commit a crime or a felony, I want to be in Judge Mortensen's courtroom. <laughs> Here we go. Judge David Mortensen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. How do we know each other? The way we know each other is your family has lived close to my family for a long time, more yes. than 20 years. Yeah, probably that would make sense because I was I moved in when I was six, so probably right. at least 23 years because I'm 29 yep. now. You also were a church leader of mine. I was. In our same congregation. So it's a little weird for me to have this flipped because you've interviewed me many a time. This <laughs> It'll look a little different. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm married to Vonda, who's sitting here next to me. We have four kids. Only one's left at home. He's a senior in high school, so we're months away from being empty nesters. I think we're going to like it. Um, <laughs> Hobbies-wise, I do lots of stuff outdoors, so fly fishing. Used to have horses. Nowadays, I do a lot of hiking. If I remember correctly, you really like jazz music? I like all sorts of music. It's probably easier for me to name the kinds of music I don't like than the ones I do, because I like almost everything, but there are some exceptions. There's a few. And you play yeah. the guitar? I do play the guitar. Okay, guitar. Yeah. I'll always remember you playing the guitar at camp, Keith Urban, Stupid Boy. Yeah. I will remember that for the rest of my life. Because um, <laughs> I'd never heard that song before. Uh-huh. And then I heard you play it and your, daughter, and your daughter sing it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then when I hear it, I think of that. I know you more as a neighbor, but as a profession, you're a judge, which is super fun when you're a religious leader as a judge, I might add. That's really cool. Everyone should have that in their life. (laughs) What does your work life look like day to day? Well, I need to make a distinction because when people say judge, they think of, well, most people think of Judge Judy and it's nothing like that. Or they think of like a judge you see on TV. And that's usually a trial court judge, like a judge that does jury trials. And I was a district judge and I did that kind of work for a little bit short of 10 years, about a decade. And then I got appointed to the Utah Court of Appeals, which is where I'm the judge now. There's seven of us on that, and it's an intermediate appellate court. So when people don't like what happens in the other areas, juvenile court, district court, or even agency determinations like the Labor Commission, and they appeal... Then they come to us and we sit in panels of three and decide cases. So my interaction with most of humanity is really limited because for the most part, now I only see the lawyers and only for a very short time. The majority of my work is research and writing. I do that almost entirely by myself or with my two law clerks. Do you enjoy that? I do. Yeah. I'm kind of introverted in a lot of ways. I'm one of those people who really likes to be alone. And I like silence, and so it's the perfect job. If you didn't like what I do, then it would be water torture because we only do the same thing over and over again. The best way to explain it is we we have to author these opinions and then see if we can get our colleagues to agree with us. And it's like writing four term papers every month. Ooh. So if you're into that, Hard it's pass. awesome. <laughs> but most, most kids, when they come and they do the tour of the court... They're intrigued by what the trial courts do because that's like Perry Mason or Law and Order. And they right. think, yeah, I get that. And then they come talk to us. And once they figure out what we do, they all look at us like, why would you ever want that job? <laughs> I think it's the best job in the legal community. But again, you have to like what I do. If you didn't like it, then it would be the worst. Did you enjoy your time in the courtroom? I did very well, much. I, I miss some of it. Um, a lot of it's repetitive. I don't miss that. I miss trials and I miss the interaction with people. 
How does compassion play a role in your occupation as a judge? I think there's a lot of compassion in the courts, but not in the way that most people think. I think when people talk about compassion in the courts, they would maybe define that as unrestrained forgiveness, letting people off, so to speak. I think of it being different, and I think the best way to describe it is simply as kindness. And there's a lot of different ways that kindness can be expressed in the courts. One of the ways is people are scared, frankly, when they come to the courts. And it doesn't matter which court you're in. Even a lot of the time, lawyers are scared. Because most people, a court is a very unnatural place. And I recognize that it's it's my workspace. It's where I hang out every day. And so to me, it's the most chill thing ever to be in court. But to people showing up off the street, it's usually very nervous. They're usually there for reasons that are uncomfortable, either crimes that they've been accused of, divorce, a contractual dispute. It's a fight. Jerry Seinfeld once wisely said that the reason people hate lawyers is because they're the only ones who read the rules on the back of the Monopoly box. And there's a lot of truth to that. And that's what makes people nervous, is there's these people in the room that know everything, the lawyers and the judges, and um, they don't. And so they're in this space where the big issues of their life are getting determined, but they don't really know what's going on. And so in the middle of that really uncomfortable space, if you can be sensitive and kind, then that starts to put people at ease and, and helps them get through a hard experience. Win or lose, that kindness can make it a, a more pleasant experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. Can you think of specific times when you were able to use compassion that way? Sure. What Even I, just generally? No, I can think of a couple. I think the, the most compassionate thing I ever observed was a very difficult week-long jury trial where parents of a dead son, the son was about 30 years old, who died. He died in an apartment fire. And uh, the, the crux of the case was whether a fire smoke detector had worked or not. The apartment building folks thought they could prove that the young man had disabled his smoke detector. The parents, on the other hand, were arguing that the smoke detector was never functioning, and so it was the apartment building's fault. The unavoidable issue in the case that nobody could deny was that the young man was dead. And, and gruesomely slow. It wasn't a fast burn. It was slow. He died of smoke inhalation. But we had these gruesome pictures. And anyway, we spent a week with experts and all sorts of stuff trying to decide whether this apartment building should be liable. And ultimately, the jury decided that no. They decided that the young man had disabled his own smoke alarm. And they found no liability. And so they basically told these parents, you're out of luck and you get no recovery. What really expressed compassion to me was the foreperson in this case was a woman. And when it came time for me to excuse the jury, we always excuse the jury before people leave the room. Real quick, what is a foreperson? That's the, that's the foreman of the jury, the, oh. the person who's the leader. They're the person who reads the, the verdict. Right. Back in the jury room, they run the kind of run the show. And these are just everyday citizens. Everyday, everyday citizens. And these the foreman is, or yeah, the four. These are eight people who got selected, or the truth of the matter in most jury selections in America nowadays is you don't get selected to be on the jury, you get unselected to remain. In other words, we kick off everybody who we think is not going to be fair, and the, the top eight leftovers, so to speak, usually are your jury pool. So these are eight people who've never met each other. They've now taken several hours to decide this case. They've come back into the courtroom. It's really kind of stressful, of course, because now they're going to read the bad news to this mom and dad who are grieving for the death of their son. And they say, we don't find any liability. We don't, we don't buy your case. 
I excuse them and then they go out the back door. And, and usually they just file straight across the room and just go out the door. And they usually want to get out of there as fast as they can because it's uncomfortable. But in this case, as they stepped out of the jury box and started going across the well of the courtroom, right through the middle of, of the space in between the judge and the, and the lawyers, the four person hesitated. And she looked over at those parents and then she walked straight at them. And I, I'd never seen something like this. So I didn't know what she was going to do. And she went over and she hugged mom and she hugged dad. And then the entire jury, one by one, hugged them before they left. I thought it was the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Because they were saying, we understand that, that you really hurt that this person that you loved has passed away. So they, they gave them a hard decision, but at the same time, showed a lot of compassion. And I, I can't help but believe that those, those people left, of course, unhappy that they had lost their case. They'd probably been litigated for two years up to that point, at least. But I can't help but believe that they didn't at least walk away thinking, yes, the jury told me no, but after those hugs, I don't think they could say that the, the jury was mean or that the jury didn't understand us. They just disagreed. That's beautiful. I can think of one other. I don't yeah. know. Um, I had a young couple come in and they um, had a contractual dispute with somebody. I can't even remember what the fight was about. It had been in small claims court, and they had disagreed with what happened there. So when you do that, you come up to the district court, and you have what they call trial de novo, which is lawyers love to use Latin terms because it makes us sound smart. Most of the time, the lawyers do not know what the Latin terms actually mean in you know the translation, but it, it just means a do-over. So we had this trial. At the end of their case, they, they were suing this company for money, I stopped the case and I said, now, I'm not even going to have the defense put on the case because you lose. You put on your whole case for me, but I don't even need to hear from the other side. Your case is so weak that you lose. But then I said, let me explain how this works. And so I backtracked and I said, this is the law. This is how the law works. In order to recover, you have to prove these elements. And, and from the evidence you've mentioned today, your case is incomplete. You haven't proved it. And that's the reason you lose today. And so I just said, okay, everybody go your way. I got up and I left. And my bailiff came and said, can you come talk to those people? And usually when they want to talk to you after the fact, it's bad. That means somebody wants to try to talk you into something different. But my bailiff assured me, he says, no, no, they don't, they don't want to re-argue the case. They just want to say thanks. And I thought, well, this is weird. I just told them they lose. Why do they want to say thanks? So I came back out on the bench and I said, yeah, you know, how can I help you? And they said, we, we just want to thank you. And again, I thought, well, this is really weird. Why do you want to thank me? And they said, we wouldn't even come here if the previous judge had told us why we lost. All he did below at small claims was say, you lose. And since he didn't tell us really why, we appealed. But now we're fine. You've explained a lot to us. You've told us why we lose. In the parlance of the courts, we call that procedural justice. We didn't just give the people justice, but we gave them a procedural justice. We let them better understand the why behind the decision-making process. And so that's just another example of just taking time to explain stuff to people. And it's all about listening. Absolutely. Has your job changed the way you empathize with other people? Yeah, in a couple ways. I think one is for better or for worse I'll ask my wife to remain quiet on this, but um, she's sitting here next to me. I think I'm a way better listener than the average person because my job is to listen. And actually, that's sometimes annoying because I'm really listening to what you're saying and I'm breaking it down into pieces as you're talking. So I have trouble disassociating my day job from the rest of my life. And so when people talk to me, I actively listen and 
you know, a lot of times I'll say the next day, I'll say, no, 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 this is what you said. <laughs> this is what you said. This is what I understood. On the one hand, that can be really annoying, but on the other, I think it's made me a much better listener. I think from the volume of humanity that I've seen, I think that makes me more compassionate. When people have problems, I think some people from their lives might think, well, that's odd that that person has that problem. I don't find it weird that people have problems at all because all I ever deal with is problems. Between being a church leader and being a a judge, I'm more apt to believe that everybody has problems, which is, you know, the longer you live, the more accurate you know that that is. Absolutely. And so I think that makes me compassionate to the fact that I'm sensitive that everybody out there is having problems. And, and, and even, even in the criminal cases, for the most part, my saying, I don't know if it's insensitive or not, is I say we mostly deal with stupid. It's really rare that I meet somebody, even criminally, who's evil. Totally exists. And I'm you, not going to give you examples of that. Cause, right. But have you seen it? Oh, absolutely. You've seen yeah, evil. Yeah. When I was a brand new judge, I got assigned... Uh, right in a row three child abuse homicide cases children were beat to death and those a couple of those i would put in the category of evil they because a lot of times people are standing in front of me and i say to myself oh i that could be me right right (laughs) but on these cases i there was something different well there's just outside the realm of what you'd be capable of doing yeah could i could i slug a four-month-old infant that's beyond anything i can imagine ever doing but people do it yeah. And so, but for the most part, we just see a whole bunch of really, really bad decisions. And, and some of those even involve violence, but sometimes people are just getting carried away in uh, liquor, drugs, or whatever. That I don't know how much of what's happening is truly volitional, but it's just a series of bad decisions, including the substance abuse. But I still think they're mostly good underneath it, or at the same time, good and evil reside in the same space. A lot, or the way I'd say good and stupid. I think more often than not, what we're dealing with in the law is stupidity and not real evil. But it exists for sure, yeah. I would agree. On episode five, I did, I talk about black and white thinking and how it's so much easier and safer to have things very black and white and people very black and white, good or bad. And and I talk about the example of shaken baby syndrome mm-hmm. and talk about how it is so awful. I remember when I had my first baby and I was so tired I remember having that feeling where I had to put my infant down and shut the door and walk away for a little bit because I was shaking. Logically, it's not that I wanted to hurt my child, but I had that crazy feeling of just wanting the baby to stop and being willing to do anything to just make the baby stop. I feel like I've had different experiences like that that have made me realize that people aren't in black and white categories. It's making good decisions in hard, stressful times. Exactly. And we've all made stupid decisions. I'm so grateful that my stupid decisions haven't landed me ever in a courtroom. But um, I look back and think about some of the decisions I made. And uh, uh, You know, there's actually a billboard on I-15. I don't know who's still there. To me, that it's a perfect example of it. It says, I probably should call a cab. It's about driving drunk. And then it's stricken through probably. And it says, I should call a cab. That's the kind of decisional process. Is until they decide to get in the car, I don't think the person who drinks is necessarily an evil person. What we're talking about there is stupidity. And it's the difference between I should call a cab and I probably should call a cab. No, you should call a cab. But on the other hand, I'm perfectly comfortable that if you get in the car and drive drunk, that you should go to jail, right? Yeah, well, and that's cool that you can have both emotions at once. That's something that I have really learned throughout my 20s is that I'm able to feel more than one thing at once. I can feel a great deal of compassion for people and still be hurt by something sure. that, that they did. I can I can feel love and I can feel hurt by them at the same time. That's been a big learning curve for me. 
have you witnessed compassion and or connection save a life in your area of expertise? I talk a lot about here of compassion, connection, saving, right, and changing right, lives. Right. Have you witnessed that? Sure. But I'd have to say I've seen it expressed in a lot of different ways because compassion could be family letting somebody with a substance abuse issue essentially take advantage of them repeatedly and always being there for them. But simultaneously, that same compassion and love can mean in the appropriate circumstances, letting the person hit rock bottom, which for a lot of parents is difficult. In fact, it's one of the most frequent things you see is that uh, there'll be a couple, happily married, very good functioning couple, but one of them will want to let the child hit bottom. They won't pull out the rug because they think that's what will wake them up. And the other one wants to cradle them, sometimes in a bit of a codependent unhealthy way that can actually cause a lot of stress in that underlying marriage but you see that the people are trying to figure out it's always coming from the same place it's coming from a place of love they want to figure out the best way to help somebody recover there's no one right way because there's no one kind of person we see a lot of that we see a lot of forgiveness i've lost count of the number of times in court where somebody did something terrible and i had somebody stand up and say i forgive you Really? Yeah. And usually the way they express it, though, is I forgive you because I need to forgive you. Mm. If I don't forgive you, it's, it's not about you. It's about me. But it's if, if I get destroying my life to carry so much anger or resentment, and so I'm, I'm just going to forgive you. But a lot of times it's just plain, plain love. They're just concerned for another human being. So that's kind of a beautiful thing. Well, and I think forgiveness can also be a changing point in someone's life. My friend Jane Kelly is a former drug addict, and he went to jail. Not as well. You have not been to jail, but as we're talking about jail. I, I visited. Yeah. <laughs> Just Well, inside. he went to jail in a different way. <laughs> he was on here, and he talks about the story of his wife forgiving him, the impact it had on him, and his motivation to change. It's a beautiful thing. If there's someone listening that is feeling discouraged what message would you leave with them just from, from all of your life experience, whether it has to do with your job or not? It's the same side of one coin, and that is if it's your problem you're dealing with, then I'm confident you can change if you want to. And if you're having trouble with other people, then you need to know that they can change. Not to confuse that with you can make them change, because I don't believe in that. You know, you're in the courts long enough, you start to realize mm. you can't make, make people do stuff. The classic part of that is uh, I realized after I'd been judged for a couple of years that I was one of the things I was missing was I would punish people with the punishment that would work for me personally. Oh. I think, oh, I'm going to do this. Like what would have woken you up? If what you would have woken me up or what would, would two months in jail rock my world? Well, yeah, it ruined me. I mean, I can stand that. But after a while, I needed to start understanding that that was the entirely wrong perspective. I needed to figure out what was going to work for them, not for me, because we don't think the same. <laughs> That's why I'm in that, sitting there on the bench with a robe, and they're sitting there in shackles. Right. It's because we don't think the same, so I needed to start understanding how they think. But even given that different thinking, I think the most important thing is that we recognize that people can change. And, and sometimes it takes a, a long time. Even to this day, there is a young man who just happens to be dating uh, or even engaged to a girl in our neighborhood. And the first time he stopped to tell me anything, it scared me because over my shoulder I hear, hey, judge, you know, this is in front of my house. 
And then you don't want to hear that because you don't know who this person is. But he just wanted to tell me how great he was doing, how he was off heroin and life was good and he's doing all this great stuff. And to this day, if I bump into him on the street, it's been eight, nine years, he'll tell me how awesome it was. But he, he also will tell you that the month in jail that he spent was where he figured out this isn't the way he wanted to live his life. So people can change. I, like I think that. there's a lot of hope in that. I don't think anyone's ever shared that at the end. That's really powerful. Thank you. Jed Mortensen for being here. My pleasure. So what's the moral of the story? Stay in school, kids. Don't do drugs. Love, not war. All of it. All of it. (laughs) I love that conversation with the judge. And it's kind of cool to be a grown-up and get to talk to him like a grown-up now. He was always so kind to me and he always talked to me as a grown-up, even when I was little and torpy. But it's kind of fun to have someone like that that saw you grow up and saw you in all your awkward stages as a teenager. And I just appreciate him allowing me to grow up and come and be on my podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor, Mountain West Animal Hospital. It's always fun to have a sponsorship from a business from your hometown, which I proudly claim Springville, Utah as mine. I even did an interview with Dr. Davis when I was a high school student. I was just remembering this and I toured their clinic at the time. It's fun now to visit and and I see the reindeer over the fence in the back and chickens running around. It's such a fun atmosphere. You can find more about Mountain West Animal Hospital or moi, as I like to call it, at drbot.com. And who knows? They are so talented and so compassionate with their animals. Maybe they could have even saved my thumper. I guess I'll never know. RIP thumper. Next week, my guest is a dear friend who comes to the podcast with the perspective of what it's like to be very young and already divorced. He got married with all the hope in the world and his marriage only lasted about 10 months. He once shared an essay with me that he wrote not long after his wife left him and it really touched me. It was beautiful. He told me that he'd be happy to share what he's learned from his beautiful life and so I took him up on it. He will also be sharing that essay that he wrote on the podcast as part of our interview next week. I'll see you next time, or I guess hear you next time, or talk to you through the mic next time. (laughs) Whatever you want, fill in the blank. My name is Julie Lee, and I see you 